This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. I think President Carter had in mind that this was a conceivable way, Eagle Claw, to extract, if you can use that word, the U.S. diplomats with a minimal loss of life. It's the 34th anniversary of the start of the Iranian hostage crisis. Ken Taylor was the Canadian ambassador at the center of it all. It became the subject of the fictionalized film Argo, and now a new documentary, Our Man in Tehran, set the record straight. Today, Ken Taylor will tell us exactly what happened and just how involved the Canadian government was with the CIA. From my understanding, it's a special club because there's not a lot, so to speak. So being here, seeing a group like this, it's, it's nice to see that. Plus, Friday marked the beginning of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. It kicked off with a toast to hope, a party with a guest list that seems almost unimaginable for a cancer with a survival rate of just 6%. A dozen long-term survivors were celebrating together in one room. I'll have details on the latest research that's giving us reasons to be hopeful. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A bill to allow doctors to help end the life of some terminally ill patients has passed the first hurdle in the Quebec legislature. The proposal is being sent to committee for study after being approved by a vote of 84 to 26. Euthanasia is illegal under federal law, but the Quebec government argues this is a matter of health care and therefore falls under provincial control. Under the proposed Quebec legislation, a commission on end-of-life care would be set up and several conditions would have to be met before life could be medically ended. Some Canadians who need orthopedic surgery are forced to wait for more than nine months to receive treatment while others have to wait for slightly more than four months just to receive an appointment with a neurosurgeon. A new survey from the Fraser Institute says healthcare wait times have nearly doubled over the past two decades to an average of 18 weeks. Co-author Nadim Ismail says these protracted wait times exist not because of insufficient spending but because of poor policy. He says wait times can be considerably reduced without higher spending or abandoning universality, but by examining successful universal health care systems, such as those in Australia and Switzerland. Most Zoomers love their jobs. A new survey says 9 in 10 American workers aged 50 or older are very or somewhat satisfied with their work. The finding bolsters previous research indicating job satisfaction grows with age. Older workers generally have already climbed the career ladder, increased their salaries and reached positions where they have greater job security. The survey was conducted for the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. 
And finally, Alice Munro won't be able to travel to Sweden to receive her Nobel Prize for Literature. But the first Canadian woman to receive the prize will be well represented. Her daughter Jenny Monroe will attend the ceremony on her mother's behalf on December the 10th and collect the prize, which is worth about a million dollars. The 82-year-old author has previously said she won't be well enough to make the journey to Stockholm. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's the only common form of cancer where survival is still in the single digits. But Friday night was a magic moment for Canada's pancreatic cancer community. In addition to family, friends, advocates and researchers, we gathered more than a dozen long-term survivors to mark the beginning of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. I had the operation five years ago, September 1, and I'm still clear. From my understanding, it's a special club because there's not a lot, so to speak. So being here, seeing a group like this, it's, it's nice to see that. I think it always appeared to me that it was a very hopeless kind of cancer. And uh, I'm pleased to see that now there's some attention being given to it. The doctor told me I had pancreatic cancer and he said, do you want to be operated on? I said, yeah. And uh, so... Uh, two or three days later, I was down here in the hospital. They didn't wait. I left the hospital here at March the 3rd, 2003. Always think positive. Well, getting all these survivors in a single room isn't just a reason for a party. It's also a reason for researchers. And what the doctors want to find out is why our lucky partygoers survive where others do not. Dr. Andrew Biankin is the Regis Chair of Surgery and the Director of the Translational Research Centre at the University of Glasgow. He is in town to talk about personalized medicine and how it can be used for pancreatic cancer. He is going to speak at the Gloria Pearl Symposium on Pancreatic Cancer and I sat down with him at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. So I guess the good news that I was just told by Dr. Moore is that now the one-year survival rate, which was 20% Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, is now 40%. Mm -hmm. So that still means that most people die within a year of diagnosis, but 40% have more time a year. How significant is that? When we think about how we're changing things to move forward, I think even a measurement like that is significant in that we're starting to make some headway and really understanding what's changing those parameters, what is it about the increased survival at the one-year mark that's, uh, that's giving us some insights into how, where we're making this headway. What is different about the patients who survive long-term? So what we, do, what we are starting to find and some early signals on is that um, uh, pancreatic cancer is a, it's what's called very heterogeneous. That means it's probably mix, a mix of a multitude of different genomic types of cancers. And we have drugs now that target particular genetic events. And so if you only have a small proportion of people that have this particular genetic event, if you don't pick those people for the drug that you're using that targets that genetic event, you'll miss it in your clinical trial. But what we're starting to find, if you match the right drug to the right patient, which has sort of happened by accident, 
uh, we're starting to see signals and significant responders. And now what we want to do is take that information that we see in this, you know, this quasi-accidental um, way um, and then take it and test it in the clinic to say, we think that this is the right drug for you first up and we're going to give you that drug um, and really testing personalised therapy for, uh, for cancer, particularly pancreatic cancer. The theory is, or what I always hear, is that pancreatic cancer is particularly resistant to chemotherapy and uh, one of the theories is that it's, uh, there's a kind of hard shell around the cancer called a stroma. What about all that? I think that's a difficult question to answer. Certainly that will play some component as to uh, whether the drug gets in or not because whether you have the right drug or not, if it doesn't get in, it's not going to have a particular effect. I think we're still trying to work out how that shell affects the cancers, how it affects the drug getting through to the cancer. Um, we're starting to see variability in that as well in that in some cancers the shell is quite tough, in other cancers it's probably not as tough. Um, so we're looking for toe holds as to where we can start to move forward and then expand that. Where are you at in your opinion? Uh, we think pancreatic cancer is a, an opportunity to pioneer truly personalized therapy. We probably have enough effective drugs on the shelves right now to potentially treat 30 or 40 percent of pancreatic cancers. But what they've done is just tested all of them and so you don't detect the difference between a group of patients. So for example, if you have 100 patients in one group that get the, right, the, the drug and 100 patients in another group that get a different drug um, or a combination of that drug, if only a few of those patients actually respond, you won't detect that in a clinical trial. But if you match the right drug to the right patient, you might get dramatic effects. And that's uh, particularly profound in pancreatic cancer, and that's where I think we need to at least test and try as our next port of call. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Libby. For more information, go to pancreaticcancercanada.ca. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. November 4th is the anniversary of the start of the Iranian hostage crisis. In just a moment, we'll talk to the man who was in the middle of it all, Canadian Ambassador Ken Taylor. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. It was thought that the U.S. could mount a commando raid. It was a daring scheme called Eagle Claw. You have the possibility of saving people's lives. Monday marks the 34th anniversary of the Iranian hostage crisis, a watershed event that has marked relations between the West and the Middle East to this day. While 52 American diplomats were held by revolutionaries for 444 days, six found refuge in the Canadian embassy and ultimately escaped safely in what became known as the Canadian caper. Last year, the Oscar-winning film Argo came out with the Hollywood version giving all the credit to the CIA. Now the documentary Our Man in Tehran tells the true story with Ambassador Ken Taylor at the center. I thought this would be a chance to tell Canadians what really did happen in Tehran. And it's a Canadian story, and maybe this is the way to a, a true retelling and 
reliving the, the actual situation. The film lays out the events and the risky decisions made behind the scenes by Taylor and by then Prime Minister Joe Clark and Foreign Minister Flora MacDonald. Ken Taylor is one of my all-time heroes. When I sat down with him, he was very open about the extent of his work providing intelligence directly to the CIA. He did the planning for Eagle Claw, an American military operation that was ultimately abandoned. In this film, it's the first time that you completely lay on the table your role in helping the CIA. Mm -hmm. What made you do that? And uh, that's controversial. Well, probably if it hadn't come out in Robert Wright's book, it would never come out. Um, it's, it's something that was done um, totally undercover. Here you are, uh, Canada, essentially helping the U.S. not declare war, but undertake a commando raid in Iran. So it's something that um, we decided in Ottawa, um, the Prime Minister, certainly, and I guess myself, it was done, it was finished, and that's where it would sit. However, um, three years ago, some documents came out which essentially told the outlines of the story. And at that point, it, it seemed to make sense that we talk about it in general, particularly as, again, reflective of what Canada is able to do overseas internationally and what they're prepared to do for, say, an ally like the U.S. There would be a lot of Canadians who won't like that. I know. That's life. <laughs> um, the, the, um, at the time, those of us, um, the, myself and the embassy, the prime minister, foreign minister, and a few people in the department, that's all that knew about it. This was something that a friend desperately needed. It was uh, the Iranians, those who commanded the embassy, had offended diplomatic protocol with increasing damage to themselves and other countries. They were holding 52 people prisoner who had been charged with nothing. They were threatening to put them on trial. Khomeini had manipulated the hostage crisis to assert his own presence. This required a response. And certainly it was better than the U.S. declaring war, essentially, in and obliterating Iran, because that was always a possibility. If the Iranians would have put some of those diplomats on trial, I don't think the U.S. public or the administration could have constrained themselves not to wipe out Iran's oil production. Did any American official ever talk to you about that? Well, it was, it was there. And I think President Carter had in mind that this was a conceivable way, Eagle Claw, to extract, if you can use that word, U.S. diplomats with a minimal loss of life without declaring actually a state of war. And they had nobody to do the planning. The Canadians, well, we already were deeply involved in Iran, uh, primarily doing things the U.S. never asked us to do. We said, this is what's going on, this is what we're doing. So it seemed to be a logical extension um, um, to go into something um, uh, that was a bit more, if you could say, precarious or something that we weren't going to talk about. Your point's a good one, in the sense that some people will feel, a number of Canadians may feel that this offended and tarnished Canada's role abroad. Personally, I don't feel that way. This was really the beginning of the latest gasp of fundamentalist Islam and, and uh, an Islamic theocracy. <coughs> At the time, uh, did you think that that was the way things would turn out? and? 
do you think that offense unfolded differently because it was uh, a religious group taking power? I had the sense that um, something fundamental was going on here. Initially, when the, the unrest started in Tabriz in the north, then it worked its way down to Tehran, and, uh, and a confrontation between the government, the Shah's forces, and those who sought change. There was other dimensions to it than the religious dimension. There were the Communist Party, the Two-Day Party. There was a secular group who wanted to maintain the Shah's presence under sort of a reform government. So it wasn't clear at early on that this was going to introduce and bring about a, a theocracy. It seemed to also indicate that the West was vulnerable and that Islam was going to play a role and that Khomeini's entry and his eventual supreme leadership had the same impact, I think, as the Russian Revolution, say, the French Revolution the earlier. This was a fundamental turning point. You can throw in Mao and China as well, but I think it's, it, it ranks with those um, four. And look at today. When you look back on your role, mm -hmm. is there anything you would have done differently? Well, I would have tried to get out earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Ken Taylor, thank you so much. You. Pleasure Good talking to you. Good to see you. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, in honor of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, we'll hear music sung by a legendary performer who was sadly lost to the disease. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, real-life husband and wife Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz make their first appearance on stage together. After starring on film in the movie Dreamhouse, Craig and Weiss headline in Betrayal at the Ethel Barrymore Theatre. The 1978 play by Harold Pinter is directed by Mike Nichols about a woman who's cheating on her husband with his best friend. In the Windy City, an exceptional loan from the Uffizi Gallery in Florence is on display at the Art Institute of Chicago. Artemisia Gentileschi's Judith Slang Holofernes, painted in 1620, epitomizes the career of the great 17th century artist. And in Japan, 150 Years of Modern Japanese Music is a mixed-media exhibition at the Tokyo Opera City Art Gallery. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Book. As we've mentioned, it's Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, and right now we'll pay tribute to one of the great artists we lost to the disease, legendary Italian tenor Luciano Pavarotti. He died of pancreatic cancer in 2007. Pavarotti was one of the world's most popular classical tenors, and by crossing over to the pop world, he was one of the most commercially successful tenors of all time. One of his best-known roles was as one of the three tenors, along with Placido Domingo and Jose Carreras. Right now, we'll hear from their iconic 1990 performance at the ancient Baths of Caracalla in Rome. Here's Pavarotti singing Nessun Dorma from Puccini's opera Turandot. Nessun Dorma, Nessun Dorma. 
That was the great Luciano Pavarotti singing Nessun Dorma from Giacomo Puccini's opera Turandot. Pavarotti passed away from pancreatic cancer on September 6, 2007. November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Next week, we bring you a special Remembrance Day edition with renowned historian Margaret Macmillan, who has just released a new book, The War That Ended the Peace. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.